Thank you for getting up an hour early. Thank you for suffering through the parking, a little different than we thought it was going to be. It'll be continuing to change as they build the North Haven Trail, and we're going to like it. Um, today, I want to start a series that we're calling The Gospel According to the Prodigal, The Prodigal Gospel. Now, if you say the word gospel in a bunch of evangelicals like our church, we all know how to summarize the gospel message. It is that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of the world, and was resurrected on the third day so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. We all know that's the gospel. And in America, historically, you could go straight to that description. So gospel tracts started with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They, they had this assumption that you understood that when someone used the word God, they meant the God of the Old and New Testament, that he is a personal God, the creator God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-benevolent, all-giving God, and the God who gave his son, who is the son of God. But we live in a world that is much more confused so that today you can no longer assume that when you give that quick presentation of the gospel, people know what in the world you're talking about. When you say the word God, they have all kinds of ideas, whether he is a personal God, a force, or something into which they've just placed some confidence. When you say that he is caring and loving, they may disagree with you. Uh, many have come to the point where they don't question the existence of God so much as they question whether he's good or kind because of all the difficult things that exist on life, in life. In other words, when you describe the Christian truths, we can no longer assume that people understand what we're meaning because we live in a different world. So consequently, Decades ago, when I started sharing the gospel, I always went to creation and said, I believe that results ultimately demand a cause. And historically, people have understood that cause to be God. In other words, I, I chose to build the foundation philosophically and theologically of what I meant by the terms I used. And then they have a right, a God-given right, to accept or reject them. Now, if I were Jesus, and clearly not, if I were Jesus and I understood that many wouldn't understand these basic meanings that are used in the gospel presentation, I would tend to give a brochure or a notebook or a tract that was in good logical order. It would be much like a theological textbook, theology proper, who is God? God is the creator. He is all-knowing, all-powerful. And we would have all those omni-words, omniscient, omnipresent. Uh, we would have those theological terms that we would logically go through to help people understand who God is. The problem is most of, most of us, when we read that stuff, our eyes roll back in our head and we shut down. And that's why when Jesus chose to teach us the essentials of theology for the gospel, he did something different. He told stories. Jesus told stories and used words that were infused with incredibly wealthy meanings so that in very few words, he, he gave a much deeper comprehension of what the gospel means that you and I would have come up with in our theological outline. Now, the story of the prodigal son doesn't tell about Jesus dying on the cross. It doesn't because it 
is told preceding Jesus' death. But it says a great deal about the assumptions that form the gospel message. And in the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time in a theology lesson wrapped around a story that's intended to help us understand the gospel. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal. Um, I'm going to try to keep the scripture movement to a manageable minimum, but you can keep notes and go home and look them up. They'll be in the outline as well. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. What is the role of the father in the story of the prodigal? Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The youngest one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, obviously, the parable goes on further from there, but we'll, we'll pick it up at another time. What, why is it that when Jesus wants to explain our relationship with God, the story he tells is about a father? What does that word conjure up for all of us? Obviously, fathers are universal. Everyone has a father. Whether they know him or not, we all have a father. For some of us, our fathers are very positive memories. My dad certainly wasn't perfect, but his love for me was unquestionable. And so that when I think of my father, I think of warmth and caring and kindness and integrity. For some of you, your father was not a good man. So when you hear the word, the word is encapsulated in all kinds of negative feelings. My father's father left the family when he was four. He never knew his father. So for him, the word father was a blank space. But, but the word father is one of the most powerful terms used in scripture to describe God. And so today I want us to get a better understanding of why the prodigal is a story about a father. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. One of those great books I'm sure you are all reading just this morning. Deuteronomy 31 is, is the end of the five stories of the five books of the law. And, and in this chapter, Moses has been used by God to take Israel and deliver them from their enslavement in Egypt. God put Moses through an 80-year internship just to prepare him to lead the people of Israel. 
And he was the one who stood down Pharaoh by the power of God, led the people from, through the Dead Sea, took them to Kadesh Barnea, and then experienced the incredible disappointment of seeing the Israelites choose to turn around and leave out of fear. And then God used Moses to lead the Israelites in almost 40 years of wilderness wandering. And their wilderness is not beautiful trees. It's more desert-like. And now they finally come to the point where God is going to give the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land to the people of Israel. And God says to Moses, you don't get to go. What a crushing idea. After all of this, God says to Moses, you don't get to go. But before they go, I want you to instruct the people one last time. In Deuteronomy 31 and 32, we have the setting and then the song of Moses, which is one of the most theologically important passages in the Old Testament about God's dealing with Israel as they possess the promised land. Read with me in verse 1, 31-1. So Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old. I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, now the day of your death is near. So call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. This is chock full with meaning. The word Joshua is literally Yeshua, which is the Hebrew pronunciation of the name Jesus. Yeshua is the one who prefigures Jesus because he will lead the people into the promise that God has given his people. So Moses is preparing to pass the baton of leadership to Yeshua. Verse 15, then the Lord appeared at the tent in a, in a pillar of cloud and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your fathers and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I have made with them. One of the most heartbreaking realities of the Old Testament is the cycle of disobedience that Israel lives. They continually fall away from God in submission to his will and then he brings judgment and discipline on them to draw them back. They repent. They come back in love and appreciation. He prospers them, and then in their prosperity, they fall away again. This pattern is continual throughout the Old Testament, and quite frankly, it probably shows itself in our lives as well. Oftentimes, we are most hardy in our prayers and most effective in our pursuit of God when things are hard. But when we are blessed, we sometimes exchange the blessings for the one who blesses. And in doing so, we fall away from the one who blesses us in so many ways. So that is the, the background to this song of Moses. As, as Moses about to bless the people as they moved in the land, he also is telling them of their coming disobedience. Skip down to verse 30. So Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. 
Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Notice that there is a focus on the character of God. That he is, he is just. He's dependable. He's caring. Verse 5. They had acted corruptly toward him. To their shame they were no longer his children but a warped and crooked generation. In this way, you repay the Lord. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Look at verse six. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Beginning especially in this passage and throughout all of scripture, the foundational idea of God being our father is that he created us. He gave us life. Fundamental to him being our father is he is the one who breathed life into Adam, who, who gave the first man and woman life. Now, I tried that with my children. Sometimes when I wanted them to act like they owed me something, I'd say, after all, your mother and I gave you life. They were never impressed, not once. But, but in the case of God, it is an incredibly powerful idea that he is who he is, and he has the rights he has because he is the creator. Now, I know that we, we live in a context today that through uh, evolutionary science and everything else, there's a lot of discussion about the, the nature of when and how things are created. And it's not my purpose today to get into that argument. But let me say this. There always has to be an ultimate cause. All of history, all of experience, everything that you and I see says there has to be cause for an effect. And throughout history, the vast majority of humankind has understood that ultimate cause to be God. It's only in recent years where we have come to worship science that we have come up with these crazy ideas that somehow science particles created themselves from nothing. But in my mind, it makes a whole lot more sense that there is something wholly other that created what you and I experience. And Scripture is built on that foundational understanding that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show His handiwork. That when we see the beauty and the order and the magnificence of Scripture, it screams a declaration of who God is. That, that He created love and beauty and kindness, things that honestly are not well explained with evolutionary theory, it begs the question, what is that ultimate cause? And how does what we see declare who he is? So in the book of Deuteronomy, the beginning point of the meaning of God as our father is that he is the one who gave us life. He created us. And in that sense, all of humankind is a child of God. All of us reflect his image and are objects of his common grace. Continue with me in verse 7. Remember the days of old and consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you 
When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples. And according to the numbers of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob his allotted inheritance. God gave us life, but God also gives us our inheritance. God gives us what we have. You think, well, I mean, isn't that just speaking of Israel? No, I don't believe it is. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Fundamental to the biblical understanding of who God is is that all, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. That all of the good we experience comes from his hand. You know, I love 1 Chronicles 29 when, when David is praying over the huge offering that his people have made to build the temple. And he says, who am I and who are my people? I think it's verse 14, that we should offer so liberally as this. We have given to you what came from your hand. Even what we give is a gift from him. So God is our creator, the force of our life, and God is our benefactor who gives us all that we have. But Deuteronomy continues in the metaphor of father and says more. Verse 8, no, verse 10. In a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on his pinions, that's on his wings. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with the honey from the rock. God is our creator. He is the one who blesses us with our inheritance. And he is also our protector. He shields us. Uh, historically. When we think of a mother, we tend to think of nurturing. We think of the mother nursing an infant and the tenderness of that nurturing relationship. Now, when we say that, that doesn't mean that fathers never nurture. But the primary thought we have oftentimes with a mother is that tender nurture. When we think of a father, we also think of a protector. Obviously, mothers protect as well, don't want to ever get in front of an angry mama. But having said that, when we think of the role of the father, it, it, it often involves that role of strength and protection because of the vulnerability of women and children in our society. And here in Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses says that not only has God created us, not only has he provided for us, but he also protects us. Of course, that begs the question, well, he doesn't protect us from everything. Seems to be a lot of things he doesn't protect us from. Scripture teaches that, that he protects us from more than we realize. But Jesus himself said, I have left you in this world. You are not of the world, but you're in the world. And because of that, you will have difficulty. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. 
In other words, Jesus acknowledges that because we are left in a broken world and God promised from the very beginning of time when sin entered in that it would be broken. But yet God continues to watch over his children and gives protection. He doesn't protect us from all from death. Uh, barring the Lord's return, we will all die. But he protects us in a way that honestly is in many ways a matter of faith. But all of us have known what it was to pray for his protection and to experience it in a significant way. So, so far in Deuteronomy, he, he tells us that God being father means that he creates us. He gives us life. God being father means that he blesses us with our inheritance. He gives us what we need. God being father means he protects us. That's all a part of what that term means. And I'm not going to read the last of the chapter, verses 14 through um, the end of the chapter. But there it says that God will discipline us. The rest of the chapter is an, a, a constant statement of how God will discipline the nation of Israel because they will turn away from him when they take the land. And while you and I often don't see that as his love, oftentimes that is the greatest evidence of his love, isn't it? The book of Hebrews takes up this idea in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4 says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those, what? He loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts his sons. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children, not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our father disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces the harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Deut the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 explains what it means that God is his father. It begins with the most comfortable statement, he is our creator, he gave us life. It next comes to a nice statement, he blesses us with what we have. And thirdly, there's that strong statement that he protects us in ways that we don't even know. Scripture says there are even angels watching over us. Some of us need them more than others. But finally, the chapter also says that his father, he disciplines us. And his discipline is one of the greatest reflections of his love. So as Moses speaks to the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land, part of what he's saying is God will bring discipline on you so that you will be turned back to him. And most of us know that our greatest growth, our greatest maturity, our greatest ability to become more Christ-like has come through God's discipline, not just through his blessing. So in the Bible, when the term father is used, I believe it all goes back to Deuteronomy 32. These are the ways 
in which God is our father. And that is why Jesus chooses a father to describe the love of God in the story of the prodigal. So what difference does that make? Finally, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Isn't it interesting that Jesus instructed us that the first picture that should come to our minds of God is as our Father. Holy is your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, provision, inheritance, blessing. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, our discipline. Lead us not into temptation, protection. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give the bread because he is his friend. Because of the man's boldness, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So how does he illustrate that truth? Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you're evil, know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How do you love as a father? How do you love as a father? Are you willing to sacrifice for your children? You think God won't? Are you willing to do what's best for your children even when they don't like it? You think God won't? Those of us who are parents understand that when we first have a child, it's a game changer. All of life is different, right? And when I talk to young couples in the church, and they say they're going to have a baby, and I say, do you have a dog? Work with me here. And they'll say, oh, we love our dog. And I always say, you're a poor dog. Because the moment the child comes in, the dog goes outside, right? That dog that was the object of your affection, the one that you talked about, it was such a part of your, your life, suddenly, eh, has anybody fed the dog? I remember the first time I held my oldest daughter. I went into the nursery after she had been born and she weighed eight pounds. She was about that long and I, they put her in my lap. I knew nothing about holding a baby and she grabbed my finger and I took out my checkbook and started writing checks at that very moment. <laughs> because suddenly I experienced a love that was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Because... She's made my image. I gave her life. She's my child. I'll do anything for them. 
Don't tell them that because they'll smart enough now they can art smart me. The, the, but the reality is that, that when we hear the term father, parent, that conjures up a sacrificial kind of love that changes everything else. An old mentor of mine in Fort Worth who had four sons, each of which was a knucklehead at one time or another, said to me years ago, you're never doing better than your worst son. Because how your kids are doing determines how you're doing, right? And, and, and when your child comes to you and asks for things that you can't possibly give, it, it, it is one of the most demoralizing things as a father. You want to be able to give them everything and you can't. And when they ask for something that you can give, you can't wait to do it. And if they'll just say thank you, they'll get more endlessly. And the Heavenly Father loves you. You're his child. From eternity past, he, he knew of you, he knew your personality, he knew your traits. And he directed his love toward you. He rejoices at your birth. And he gave his only son so that you could be with him forever. That's the father's love. That's what scripture means when it describes God. Is that what you think of? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often have inadequate views of who you are. And we certainly neglect to realize just how deep the Father's love is. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to understand your love as it is. Thank you that you gave us life. Thank you that you bless us with good things. Thank you that you protect us. Thank you even that you discipline us. But mostly, Lord, thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name.